Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, in this uh, short season after Easter, um, we have been looking together at what the New Testament says that the resurrection of Jesus means uh, for people like us. Uh, it is good to learn or good to be reminded, if that's the case, that the resurrection is not something that just happened to Jesus a long time ago. Uh, the resurrection isn't just some doctrine floating up in the clouds somewhere. I mean, because Jesus was resurrected, because Jesus was resurrected, that meant that that was the beginning of God's new world. And because we're part of that world, the resurrection has a very profound and concrete meaning for our own lives and for the life of the world right now. The resurrection is the deepest truth of our reality, and it is a power that gives meaning to our lives. So this morning we're going to look at Paul's letter to the Philippian church, and I'm going to read from the third chapter. I'm going to read a little different than what is printed in your order of worship. I'm going to start after the first sentence, and then I'm going to read a verse that isn't printed. So you can kind of follow along there, or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Philippians 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would be happy to use this word uh, that we have just read and heard together um, that you'd be happy by the power of your spirit to, to lead us through it to the word that bears our flesh that is seated at your right hand right now praying for us. Father, meet us in whatever place we find ourselves this morning, in faith or out of faith, feeling close to you or far from you, close to those around us or far from them. Meet us where we are and show us the grace of Jesus and change, change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. So, uh, in high school, I had a very, very brief career uh, in track and field. Uh, in particular, I threw the shot put. And just to be very specific, I threw the shot put in one competition, and I threw it three times in that competition. That was my illustrious career in track and field. Um, I went to a small private school. We did not have a track and field team, but we did participate in a regional competition uh, with other schools our size. And um, for some reason, even though I had never um, thrown shot before, even though I had never held one in my hand, 
I got it in my head um, that I would probably be pretty good at it. Um, so I signed up for that part of the competition. Now, my gym teacher, he also did not know how to throw shot, but he did agree to get me one. So he got me one, and uh, this was back before the dawn of time, before you could look up dozens of tutorials on how to throw shot on the Internet or easily watch a video of athletes actually throwing shot. Um, so what I did was the next best thing. I got a couple books out of the library on strategy and style, and I read them, and I set out to figure out how to throw shot in my backyard. Now, <clears throat> I didn't really uh, have a standard to compare my throwing to. All I can say um, is that I made progress. The more uh, that I practiced, the farther I could throw. Uh, and so I started, as I, I was able to throw further and further, I started having uh, these dreams of track and field glory. And I started imagining myself at that competition blowing everyone away. Uh, and then came game day. <laughs> I was pretty proud of how far I could throw. Um, but within about 12 seconds, I knew I was in deep trouble, um, in part because the guys I was throwing with were huge. <laughs> they were huge. As soon as I saw them, I wanted to slowly back away from the area and hope that no one had seen me, um, but it was too late. I had to stay there and I had to throw. And uh, perhaps more relevantly than their size, these other guys also actually knew how to throw a shot put. Uh, and my throwing, of, of which I had formerly been so proud, um, averaged a, about a quarter of the distance of everyone else in that competition. Uh, it was really bad. I had come face to face with this reality that made me realize that what I had convinced myself was pretty, a pretty big deal <laughs> was pretty much nothing at all. And I still cringe when I think about it. And I bring this up because that same kind of thing runs right through the heart of that part of Paul's letter that we just read and heard together. Paul tells his friends that he has come face to face with a reality that made him realize in an instant that all of the credentials that he had garnered, all of the credentials that he had spent his whole life accumulating around himself, credentials that his peers would have regarded as wildly important and impressive and weighty, he realized in an instant that they were pretty much nothing at all. In fact, in this incredible piece of destructive accounting, he says he counts all of those things as a loss. Worse, really, than a loss. He says they are rubbish. They're trash compared to the great centering reality of his life. And that reality is the risen Jesus. Seeing the risen Jesus has rewritten the narrative of the world for Paul. It has resituated him inside that narrative and inside that story. And it has given him a whole new way to live. And what he wants is for his friends in that church and for us to see the same thing that he has. And to hear that new story and to walk into it and into that new way to live. So it's helpful probably to know that Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison. Now Roman prisons were not around to rehabilitate anyone. Um, they were pretty much holding tanks where you would be kept out of the way until the Roman power decided that you would either be let go or executed. And in order to survive in a Roman prison, you were completely dependent on people outside of that system for support, 
for pretty much everything that would keep you alive. And what had happened is that this little church had heard about this situation with Paul and they had sent him a gift, probably money and food, maybe something to read and stuff to write with. And they had sent that gift with a guy named Epaphroditus. And this letter called Philippians is Paul's thank you note back to the church that he sent with Epaphroditus back to them. Now, of course, Paul uses this occasion to say a lot more than thanks. He writes about a bunch of other things. It is a beautiful, beautiful letter. And in the part of the letter that we just read together, Paul is really animated about a threat to the faith of this little church. What had happened is there were teachers who were running around to the churches that Paul had founded and telling these converts there, and most of them were just from completely irreligious or pagan backgrounds, And they were coming into those churches and telling those people in those churches that they had started out okay, that following Jesus was okay. But if they wanted to be really good, if they wanted to be super religious and spiritual and a-okay, what they needed to do was take on certain Jewish rituals and purity and food laws. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you know that this gets him super hot. He says over and over again in his letters that faith in Jesus is enough and that Jesus plus anything is false and it will wreck your faith. So what he is doing in this part of the letter is he is warning his friends to look out for anyone who tells them that they should be putting, as he says it, putting confidence in the flesh. He's telling his friends to watch out for anyone who tells them that they ought to be putting confidence in credentials like doing a bunch of stuff no matter how good those things appear to be. And this is where Paul begins to do that destructive accounting. He says, look, if anyone wants to put confidence in the flesh, I mean, if that's what this game is about, then no one has better credentials than me. None of these guys are going to match me. If that's what the game is about, then listen, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee, for goodness sakes. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And when, when it comes to keeping the law, when it comes to doing what's right, I was blameless. Paul's saying, listen, none of these jokers coming around trying to mess up your faith, they don't have credentials anything close to what mine are. No. None of the stuff, of course, that Paul lists means much to people like us in the 21st century. But we certainly have our equivalents. Being born into the right family, you know, having stellar test scores, going to a fantastic college, having great grades, a great GPA, being distinguished in our field, making partner, right? Having the correct politics for whatever peer group you think is important. Being on all of the right boards, traveling to all the right places, having really good theology or volunteering a lot and in the right places, being smart, being good-looking, being sought out for our opinions. Right? This list could go on and on. These are the list of the kinds of things that people like us often are tempted to put our confidence in and to rest in. 
I might not have said your particular thing, but if you're like me, it's not hard to come up with a personal list pretty quickly. Things that we rest in, put our confidence in. And the problem is, as good as many of those things are, or as good as they could be, they don't really have any ultimate significance in the true story of the world. In the new world that began at the resurrection of Jesus, the accounting method has changed. As Paul says it, whatever gain that I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. In one stroke, all of those things that were credits move into the debit column. And of course, you know in Paul's life, no one would dispute that this was true, that this had happened to him. I mean, by one way of counting, before he meets the risen Jesus on that road outside of Damascus, by one way of accounting, Paul, he used to be a somebody. I mean, this guy was an up-and-comer. People wanted to be near him and around him and learn from him. He was a guy with promise. And now he's chained up in a prison cell, dependent on outsiders for his next bite of food. But Paul didn't stumble into that by accident. He didn't happen into it by a really unfortunate streak of bad luck. He saw the risen Jesus. And he realized that he was not living in the world that he thought he was living in. (laughs) And all of his loves and all of his values and all of his desires changed in an instant. And he has never, ever been more content or more filled with joy or more sure of who he really is in his whole life. It's a whole different way of accounting. (laughs) And it's one that Paul wants his friends to begin to take on and live out. And it is one that people like us are called to take on and live out of if we are followers of the risen Jesus. So the question really is simple. What is it that we put our confidence in? What is the stuff that we are looking to for meaning, and for identity, and for life, and for peace? Is it a million lesser things that have never and could never really deliver? Or is it the one thing that has and does? That's where Paul moves next, to that one thing. On that road outside of Damascus, he had come face to face with a reality that had re-narrated and retold the story of the world to him and graciously invited him to find his place in that story. Once he had seen the risen Jesus in all of his grace and all of his glory, he says that he counted everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And I love the intimacy of that language that Paul uses. He is not talking about knowing a bunch of stuff about Jesus. He's talking about actually knowing Jesus. I know not every one of us in here this morning is inclined to think this way, but some of us are. And so to us, let me say this. We should never, ever confuse amassing a bunch of facts about something with actually knowing that thing. We may be able to state a whole lot of orthodoxies about the person of Jesus. But this is no guarantee that we know him. And this is for all of us to hear 
And we've got to hear this, church, because over and over and over again, we see in Paul's letters that he talks about his faith in Jesus in relentlessly personal ways. That's at the heart of our faith, church, and there is no substitute for it. There is no other way to inhabit our faith than to come to believe and live out of the truth that Jesus loved me and that he died and was raised for me and that he lives and he reigns not just for the good of the world, but for my good too. Paul can never, ever get over this. Read his letters and you'll see he cannot get over this deeply intimate and personal way of viewing his faith and living it out. He repeats himself. He expands on it. He says, for Jesus' sake, I've suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. It's an incredible image. I mean, when Paul talks about gaining Christ, he's not talking about adding Jesus to his portfolio or something like that. That would be the old way of accounting, right? With all of his other credentials, Paul now says, hey, I'm a Christian too. Now, when Paul talks about gaining Jesus, he talks about it in a very different way. He says, it is to be found in him. Paul is not the one doing the finding. Paul is the one that is found. And Jesus has become a place now for Paul. Jesus is a home for him. Where his formerly lost self can be at rest. It's a home where, Jesus, where Paul can finally find the peace and the rest and the identity and the joy and the meaning that he was made for. That's a home that Paul wants people like us to find ourselves living in so that we can find the same things for ourselves. The peace and rest and identity and joy and meaning that we were created for in the first place. That's why our accounting needs to change because as long as we run by that old system of accounting and we've got a death grip on all of the stuff that we've been clinging to, we will continue to be susceptible to the temptation of grabbing more and more and more of that kind of stuff and having our hands be completely full and then trying to pile more on top of that. And the result will always be the same. They can never deliver what we need because they were never intended to do that. But if our accounting changes and we drop all of that stuff and we cling to Jesus, we are home. We are home. And in that home, all of the things that we used to cling to that are good, they will finally find their proper place and we will be free. Free to live the life that we were made for. That's where Paul goes next, this life that we have been made for. He speaks about it in the first person. He tells his story as an invitation to his friends and to us to join in it. And the first thing he says about this life is that now he has a righteousness that comes from God, not a righteousness that he has to somehow frantically and desperately fabricate or work up on his own as if he could ever do that anyway. To be found in Jesus, Paul says, is to, be, to have his righteousness which is more than enough for people like us. 
Paul doesn't need now to curry God's favor by keeping his nose clean, by doing a bunch of stuff that he thinks will make God happy. By faith in Jesus, Paul is saying, he already has God's favor. And church, to know that is true, to know that that's true and to live out of it, it is to be a free person. And when we're free, we don't do good to curry favor and earn it. We do good out of gratitude. It changes everything. When we're free, we don't need to manipulate people into liking us by all of the millions of methods that we human beings have devised to make other people like us and say good things about us. We are free to never do that again and free to actually love other people and seek their good, even if it costs us. That's what freedom looks like. And when we are free, we, do, we don't do our work, we don't follow our vocations, we don't create the things we create or make the things that we make in order to build up some kind of status for ourselves. And when we're free, we can work for the good of the world and the good of our neighbors because we know that we are working side by side with God to make his gracious kingdom more and more present in this world. That's what freedom looks like. And this is, at least in part, I think what Paul means when he talks about living a life that knows the power of Jesus' resurrection. I mean, to be found in Jesus is to be found in his exalted, resurrected life. It means being a new creation. And that means that we are ha- finally have the power to put away old motivations and practices that were harmful to us and harmful to the people around us and to put on new ones that are life-giving and healing and restorative. I mean, Paul's not talking, when he says, you know, we live a life in the power of Jesus' resurrection, he's not talking about gritting your teeth through some kind of personal resolution that you've made. He's talking about actually having, by the power of the Spirit, the ability to follow Jesus into the life that he has made us for. He's talking about the freedom and the peace and the deep, deep joy of being a new creation and living like we were meant to live. That is the power of the resurrection of Jesus for people like us. And church, it is real and it is true. And, and because it's true, that means that we can live this way in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances even if it costs us a lot. That's what Paul means when he says that we will live a way of life where we share Jesus' sufferings, where we become like him in his death. Paul means that we will live lives that conform to the shape of Jesus' life, who didn't even consider his equality with God something to hang on to. It was a credential he was happy to give up and become obedient to the point even of his own death for our good and for the good of the world. And to follow him is to be called to live like that. That's what it looks like to share in his sufferings and to conform to his life and to conform to his death. And some of us will experience that conformity in really obvious and, and, and easy to see ways. And others of us will, will see it in quiet and hidden ways. But we will all experience it. And the only thing the only thing that will give that experience meaning that will fill it with inexplicable joy is because we share in the power of his resurrection.
I love how Paul ends. I mean, he admits with open hands that he has not actually attained the stuff that he's talking about. Not yet. I mean, by grace, he's had glimpses of it and tastes of it. And it is beautiful to him. But he has further to go. There is more to experience. And so his conclusion is an invitation to all of us to do the same. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Let me pray for us. Father, give us eyes to see that this is the truth, that you have made us your own, that you have given us everything, and that you have made us people who are free. Father, we ask that you would help us to live out of that freedom, to move around in that freedom, the freedom that we have to love, the freedom that we have to conform to the death of Jesus and to share in his sufferings for the good of our neighbors in this world. And Father, we take a moment to pray for this world, and in particular Ecuador and Japan, as they, parts of those countries, suffer after these earthquakes. We ask that you would bring relief through your people, through whatever means there are on the ground, and they can get there soon. We pray that you would comfort those who are in mourning. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.